Thanks for listening to the podcast from Jonathan Combs and the preaching team at Eastgate Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Check us out on the web at eastgate.church for more. And now, here's the sermon. Good morning, church. It's good to see each and every one of you today. I'm so thankful you're here. We're continuing a series that we started a couple of weeks ago entitled God Questions. And if you've uh, missed the first two of this, uh, it's online. You can check it out. We've been going through the book of Habakkuk together. And so if it's your first time with us today, hey, you're, you're jumping right in the middle of a, a very unique book in the Old Testament, one that uh, a lot of believers haven't really spent a lot of time studying. Um, it's not a book I've done a great deal of study in until now. And so it's been a real joy for me to just be in the process of preparation and be in the process of of not only learning, but how, how to apply it myself and how to help us as a church apply this. The reason we entitled it God Questions is that's in fact what Habakkuk has been doing. The prophet of old has been asking these questions of God for, for the people in the place of the people of Judah. And he's got some really tough questions. And so if you've been with us, you know he's already asked, How long, O Lord? How long before you come and make right the, 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 the terrible things that are happening in my life and in, in, in my society? How long before you come and, and bring justice and righteousness? And God answers that in a way that's not expected. And so in part two, which we covered last week, he deals with this idea of, okay, but why that, Lord? Which is just a golden question for us. Uh, as believers and non-believers, that we are asking, okay, why, Lord, did you do this or do this this way? And that's the question from last Sunday. But today, we've got a very challenging piece of Scripture because now God is really fully answering this question of how and why. And if you will, there's kind of an unwritten question that, that to some degree, Habakkuk has been asking, and now God's really answering that question. Maybe, maybe at times God answers a question we didn't ask because it was the right one, and, and we weren't asking it. And so today we're talking about this idea of where are you? Where are you, Lord, uh, moving, moving forward in this text? And I bet that's a question, like the ones we've been asking, I imagine that's a question you've asked of God probably in your life already, maybe even recently. It's where are you right now? <laughs> what... What are you doing in this moment where I can't see you moving? I can't see what you're up to, God. Where, where are you? And that's a, that's a valid question that so many of us ask. When we don't see what God is doing, we're confused. We don't see where he is at work. And I bet you've asked that question. If you watch like any bit of news right now, like if you watched any bit of news over the last several decades, I mean, this is just the nature of modern media is... Uh, pain and suffering sales, if you will. Like we're, They're always going to put out the most dangerous and terrible thing that's occurring both in our nation and around the world. It's been that way. There's nothing really new about that. But if you watch the news right now, you'll see all kinds of violence all over the world. In our country, you'll see tons and tons. It'll just infiltrate everything that's going on in your life and You'll start asking, perhaps as Christians you may ask, where are you in all of this, Lord? Like, what is God up to? We hear one view and another view about what's going on in Israel. We hear one view and another about Ukraine, and we don't know who's telling us the truth half the time. It's, it's a very big unknown. Which part of this story is really legit? And we might be asking those questions. We might be looking at our own city. We might be looking at our own nation and asking, what, God, where are you when it comes to the violence that's happening right here in Rocky Mount? The, 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 the murder, the stealing, the abuse, the division. We seem to be an even more divided nation maybe than even in previous years. It's fascinating. Just You would think we'd be moving towards uh, a great society, if you will, but that's not the case. And I think there's a reason for that is because we don't, we're, we don't follow Christ as one. And so that's where the, the great society would really truly be. And so there's tons of division. You might be asking, God, what are you going to do about that? What, what are you going to do about a people and a nation and a world that says wrong is right and right is wrong? What do you, where are you on all of this? And that's just the stuff outside. What about the stuff that's going on in your own heart? The stuff you're observing in your own family, in your own home. Where are you in this, Lord? Like when my kid has, has just abandoned the faith or has, has abandoned his parents and said, uh, you know, we don't care for you. Where are you in that? 
God, where are you when my marriage seems to be failing? Where are you in that? There's the personal stuff. Where were you, God, when I got uh, fired this week? Where were you on that? And those are valid questions that are being posed today. And I think that's a great question. That's, that's where Habakkuk is going to land. Eventually, we're going to get to the end of this book, y'all, together in just a couple of weeks. And we're going to see where Habakkuk really falls. And it's the faithful position of, Lord, I trust you. I don't understand every detail of what you're doing, but I trust you by faith. And I'm going to walk by faith. And that's where he lands. And really, that is a peaceful and blessed life. That's where joy lies. And fi- finally, just saying, I don't understand everything God's up to but I'm going to walk by faith. That's the key to our, to our whole scripture. Habakkuk chapter 2, it says, The righteous shall live by his faith. Now, I've mentioned this book for several weeks because Habakkuk is truly what, what you might call in, in biblical language, you'd call a lament. That's the idea that you would cry out to God your questions and your complaints and that you let Him see your sorrow rather than just simply complain to others. Lament is taking all of that pressure and laying it at His feet. And uh, this book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy by Mark Rogop, this is a, a quote I've been going back to every week, and I think it's very helpful. That lament is a pathway to praise when life gets hard. And that's what Habakkuk is moving towards and encouraging us to also do as we face the chaos of our own lives. Even when life doesn't make a lot of sense, God might seem far away, we can cry out and see God move. So in the book of Habakkuk, where we're going to be today, we're seeing the prophet again struggling with what God has said, that he's going to use an evil nation, a nation called Babylon, to come and judge his people. And now he's declaring these, this section could be called the five woes. I know that's a word we don't use. You might say, hey, when something crazy happens, you might go, whoa. It's not that kind of woe. All right, this is that W-O-E, which we rarely use. You probably almost never hear anyone say that. If someone's walking around saying that, boy, they're living Old Testament, man. They're living, they're living in some old King's English. But here are the five W-O-E woes judgment on Babylon. And as we read this, you're going to be going, okay, good luck, Jonathan. Like, tell me how you're going to preach this to a modern audience. Don't you worry. We're going to figure that out together. Within these five woes, we're going to see God encourage Habakkuk's faith. And we can be encouraged. We can be encouraged in our faith, understanding where God is already at work. So let's dig in. Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 6 through 20. It says, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say? Now the these here are all of the peoples that Babylon has harmed. And the him that will carry through this text is Babylon. So picking up. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and the violence and, and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house. By cutting off many peoples, you have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork will respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, It is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations they weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol? 
when its maker has shaped it. A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. God bless the reading of his word. Amen. I know that was a, that was a hesitant amen as we've been having on this whole series. God's up to something here that isn't just happening in this time period, but is happening now in our lives. And we can be encouraged in our faith first by understanding that God's judgment is already in motion. Now, I know that may not seem like necessarily a positive thing, but I think humanity in general wants justice. Um, I've observed this like in very, very young children. We want justice. It doesn't take very long before a kid will say something like, that's not fair. If you have more than one child, they say it a whole lot. It constantly, my house is a house, it's a den of unfairness. Uh, I, the, the parents can never quite get things perfectly right. That's not fair. That's not fair. He got this. She got ice cream. I can't. Unfair. And we come out that way. We're born with that. Why? Because there's a sense in, the, in, in our humanity that we're made in the image of God that we desire true justice. It's annoying and it's kid a little bit, but there's something inside of that that's very important, that we long for justice and What we really long for from God, if we're honest, is the kind of justice that most benefits us. We're looking for the justice that would make our lives the most comfortable and the most pleasing. What he's after is a better form of justice. The kind of justice that's actually perfect and doesn't always appease us. And that's what's happening here as we read last week. God is being just. He is bringing uh, condemnation on his people who have been blasphemous and run from him and are no longer following the Lord who is supposed to be their God, who is supposed to be their true king, and they're running from him, and God is just in bringing judgment on them. He's also just in what he's saying today. In fact, I would argue this is one of the more just phrases, just group of verses, and maybe all of the Bible, and that of Babylon, this nation that is now ruling the roost in, these, in these, this time period. And, and just so you know, this is in the 600s B.C. into the 500s B.C. It's a long time ago. But this nation has just taken over much of the Middle East all the way, all the way over and close to Greece. It's this massive empire. I think I have an image of that. You can pop up for me. Uh, it's a little bit, hopefully you can kind of understand. But all that blue, all the way down into Egypt, they've got this massive empire. And they got that by bloodshed, not by good diplomacy, but by constant warfare and plundering nations. And this is the accusation that God has on them, these five woes, these five, hey, hear this, you guys are in big trouble. And it's completely justified. Everything that he accuses them of, he says, not only is this true of what you did, but your punishment will fit the crime. You're going to get in return what you did. Now, it's not, it's not always this case if you just observe life. It seems like some people, some people go on being successful and wealthy who are not moral people, who are unethical people. They're maybe evil people, and they go on having success and power, and you don't often see their demise. But here, here God says, no, here comes swift justice. Here comes justice that fits the crime. And just so you know, in the scheme of nations, this justice is incredibly swift. You know, most great nations, past and present, have lasted hundreds of years. Our nation's in its, in its you know, 200s, approaching 300. And these great nations of Rome, Rome and Assyria and Persia, all of them lasted hundreds of years. Guess how long Babylon lasts? Less than 100. It's a very swift kingdom, very powerful, but just a shot in the pan. Because God sends justice quickly. And that's what he's already told Habakkuk in the previous section. So here's where we're at today. These five woes. And I just want to summarize those for you. If you've got your bulletin there, if you want to make a note in your Bible, just kind of the things, there are five of them, and they're 
There are specific accusations that he has. The first one is this, uh, this woe towards extortion. Extortion or, uh, or unjust economy theft. This is the idea of this first woe that you, you have truly plundered those. You have truly stolen from them. You've borrowed where you shouldn't borrow. He's, he's accusing them of that. And then he repeats this phrase. He says it's because of the blood of man and the violence to the earth that you'll be destroyed. Your cities will be in ruin. Now, this is a really, this is a heady thing, okay? But I'll, some of you will like this. The rest of you tell me later, like, hey, Jonathan, never do that again. It's boring. But for, some, for those rare few of you in the room that like, like linguistics and stuff, I've been working harder and harder on my Hebrew, everybody, and uh, I'm not great at it. My Greek's decent, but the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. And this is a very fascinating phrase here in verse 8 where he says, the blood of man and the violence on the earth. The blood of man is literally this idea that it's dom adam. Okay, Dom Adam, D-A-M, and then A-D-A-M. Adam, you know, this is the name of the first man. His, his name is amazing. I never knew this before, but Dom means blood. For the blood of man, Dom Adam. And Adam is a, is a combination of both Dom, which means blood, and Adama, which means ground. And that means that mankind, us, man, Adam, is from the ground, Adama, and from blood or life from God, Dom. And so he's saying here, Adam, Adam, it is because of what you have done to the image of God that you have decided to treat people cheap. You've decided not only to treat people cheap and murder them and plunder them, but you've also been violent to the earth. And we're going to get into some more about what he means by that. Like you've, you've not cared for not only the people, but for the creation. And that's the accusation, extortion. This next woe is this idea of they're, they're greedy and they're arrogant. I want to pop up a few images kind of in sequence here of, uh, of the walls of, well, that's the hanging gardens. So one of the wonders of the world was in Babylon. Anybody ever heard of the hanging gardens of Babylon? One of the seven wonders of the world recorded by Herodotus. This amazing thing was in the middle of their city and they built it on they built it on the backs of slaves. They built it on the backs of plundered nations. This, this area of the world really doesn't even have its own wood and stonework. It's a very arid and dry place. They have stolen things from all kinds of nations to build these fantastic structures. Pop up the next image. This is a rendering of what it may have looked like, but that, that gate there is called the Ishtar Gate. You can see a replica of it to this day in Berlin, Germany. But their walls... Their walls were massive, and this is the accusation that God makes, that you, you, know, you set yourself in a nest on high, you think you're protected behind your walls. Those walls, they believe, were somewhere around 85 feet thick. Think about that for a minute. 85 feet thick, and at least 11 miles long. It was said that they could ride two chariots, four horse chariots, and pass each other on the top of these walls. This is a massive structure that they were proud of and they were confident in. And God says, he says in verse 9 through 11 there, he says, the stones are going to cry out. The woodworks that you guys have stolen, they're not going to lay silent. And God's going to do something fascinating. It's not going to happen in Habakkuk. In fact, Habakkuk is called to say all this and record all this to encourage his people. But it's very unlikely Habakkuk will ever see any of this happen. He's probably a middle-aged man in this time period, and it's 70 years before God sends the Persians in this under, under uh, like canal passage to take the city. They bypass the walls altogether. Oh, you think your walls are great, God is saying. i got a plan. i got a plan to judge you here. Verse in, verses 12 through 14, he has this third woe, which is about bloodshed and iniquity and slavery. You've built your city on violence. All those who labor, you saw this sentence, they labor for fire. The, the nations, they weary themselves for nothing. That is, you're doing all this work just for something that's going to burn. Now, this is a principle. I could have taken all these woes and say, here's five principles for godly living. And that would have been an okay sermon, but it's not, it doesn't seem to be the tenor of why God's telling Habakkuk this. He's not telling Habakkuk, hey, instruct the people of God to not live like the people of Babylon. That's not why he's doing it. Now, to be fair, these are some things you really ought not do as believers, as people. But he's telling them this so that they would be encouraged and know God is just. And he sees 
He's not blind to the suffering around me. And he's going to judge according to his purpose. But he's observed this, and he's, this is a true statement for us to take with us, that the nations, they weary themselves for nothing. That we labor in vain, if you will. We labor for something that will burn up. Here's, here's, a, here's an aside, something to take away. Our primary purpose in this life is not to work for things that are fire, that will be burned up. That, that's a pretty great aside here for the people of Judah and also for us. That what, if, what is it that I'm spending all of my time doing? Is it for, as, as the King James would say, mammon? Is it for just bread? Is it for just stuff? Or is what I'm doing have some kind of eternal reality? That's why husbands, wives in the room, parents in the room, your first priority is, is those people in your household. Those people are made in the image of God. They have an eternal value. So if you're spending all of your time at work and not any time for them, you're trading eternity for fire. You're trading what is worth something for useless material. Now, that's not to say you shouldn't work. In fact, Paul speaks often about that a, that a, a man ought to work or he's worse than an unbeliever is, in fact, what Paul says, that people should take care of their families and provide. But if that's your whole agenda, you're missing something. Nations weary for nothing. Look around the world to this day. This isn't like some kind of old model. Oh, my goodness, I couldn't believe Babylon would be this way. These nations still exist today. Babylon is merely an image of what the world is apart from Christ. That this is what the nations do now. They, they war and they labor for nothing. Over lands that go this way and that, over the, as, as the pendulum swifts, shifts over, over history, all this, the Crimea is now ours and it's, and it's moving and this is all over the world. And they wage war for nothing. They, they weary themselves for fire. The fourth woe is a really challenging one. As I read it, you were probably going, huh, I really hope he tells me more about that because there was words like naked in there. Ooh, I want to know more. That woe is this idea that they are exploiting people, that they're abusing people. There's a, a sexual immorality that's in view here in verses 15 through 17. That part of what they did when they would capture nations is shame them. They would make their kings, they would make their royalty, they would make their servants come and dance before them naked, drunk. They would get them drunk and make them do these things. All sin is equal in God's eyes. But I've observed, you know, God has some, there's some things that he kind of keeps coming back to. There's some things that really seem to disgust him. And this is one of those. This idea that you would shame and, and make people be in front of you bare like that. I, I really think God is incredibly displeased with pornography. I know that might sound like random, but that's what I thought of as I was studying this this week. That that is something he is very disgusted by. And he says to them, and this, this is exactly what God says, all right? Take it or leave it. He says, how about you get drunk and how about you dance before, uh, before nations with your uncircumcision, he says, which is the idea of exposing who they were. And um, the, the, the crime, again, the punishment fits the crime. He says, I'm going to put you to shame. You've shamed the world. I'm putting you to shame. Now, he says something there. This is a bit of a history lesson, and we're going to get more into the application of it. Right there in verse 17, he says, I've got something specifically I'm mad at you about when it comes to Lebanon. Did you catch that? He says, I am going to do something about the atrocities you did to that place. Now, I imagine you may not know much about Lebanon, nor do I, but I know this much that it is known throughout biblical times by the cedars of Lebanon. And it's mentioned dozens of times, believe it or not, in the scriptures, these, these, these cedars. And just so you know, in today's world, there's a World Heritage Site right there in Lebanon that protects one of the last remaining uh, growth, like large growth of cedars. That this nation used to be widespread with them. But guess what happened? A nation like Babylon went through and completely scorched the earth went through and tore, tore down their... Basically, it would be like robbing a society of their main natural resource. These cedars were world-renowned. People wanted them all around. They're in the Temple of Solomon. They're in the Phoenician ships. They're in the nation of Tyre. These are these wonderfully amazing hardwoods. And Babylon just 
takes them. It's doesn't recede, doesn't, they just come through. And God, this is an interesting thing about God. He cares about that. He cares not only about his image bearers, but he cares about his creation. He says, I'll hold that against you. That's why he says earlier, the the walls, the woodwork itself will cry out. Because I know what you've done. They did such a, a terrible job in that season that now today there's only this one site where you can find these cedars of Lebanon. If you ever look at the, the Lebanese flag, you'll notice there's a green tree right in the center. That's the cedar of Lebanon. A little history lesson there for you. Thank you. Yeah. And then 18 through 20, the last woe is this idea of idolatry and false religion. That one, to me, that one fits the modern mind better than almost any of the woes. He starts saying, hey, look, look at these idols, these things that people make with their hands. Isn't it fascinating that they would worship something that they made? Like, what kind of God is that exactly? That it, the maker worships its creation. He said, it's fascinating to me that you, make, you laid these things with gold and silver and yet they cannot speak. And you pray to them and yet they never talk back. 18 through 20, that is the modern world. It's not just an ancient society that we still live in a society of idolatry where we make graven images for ourselves and worship them rather than the God who made us. All of this hinges around what he says right in the middle though. That a time is coming Verse 14, where the world's going to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. That is, it's going to so spread that it would be like the vast waters over the ocean. One commentator on this says, In contrast to the short-lived glory of Babylon, Jehovah's glory shall be made known all over the world and shall not be effaced. It will not be covered or veiled. God will bring every deed into judgment. I don't know who needs to hear this today. I don't know who this is for exactly. But I imagine there's quite a few of you in the room that are concerned with whether or not God has been just in your life. You're concerned when you look even at recent events and go, why this? Where were you in this, Lord? And it's not my place to try to answer that for you. Because I don't know. I'm much like Habakkuk. I'm much like you in that I'm asking similar questions and I don't know exactly what God is up to. But that's not a bad question. I'm asking you today, will you come to the Lord and lament like Habakkuk? Rather than talking just to me afterwards, and I'm happy to talk to you about it. Rather than talking to your family, what would it look like to lament and lay it at the feet of Jesus and say, I'm not sure you were just on this. Why, why did you allow this to happen? God, why Babylon? Why would you let this horrible nation, which now you're accusing and you're saying swift justice is coming, and I understand that the punishment fits the crime and all that, but will you be just in my own life? Will I get to see what it is you're doing? I want you to know something at the end of the day that lament, bringing it to the feet of Jesus, is this idea that I don't, I don't understand everything he's doing and I don't get his justice all the time, but I'm moving towards trust. I'm laying it at his feet because I trust that even this terrible stuff I've seen or will see I believe he is good and loving. And maybe he'll even let me see it. Maybe he'll allow me to see the end state of his justice or whatever he's doing in my life. Maybe he allowed this terrible tragedy to happen so that my, my sons and my daughters and my grandkids would be of the faith. Maybe this hardship was necessary for me to be where I am right now. And that's a hard thing. That's a challenging thing to try to address. And we can chase some of those rabbits for, for days and years. Go, God, what were you doing then? Is, is this why? And I lean on his word at times like this. I lay it at his feet and I lean on his word. Here's a few passages I trust will minister to you today. That God will bring every deed into judgment. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, in fact, says it just like that. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing whether it's good or evil. You serve a God, church, you serve a God who sees all things, who knows all things, who is not unfamiliar with your weakness. He knows exactly your pain. He has seen it. He is orchestrating behind the scenes. You may not see the exact end of what he's up to because your part in this legacy, your part in his kingdom 
is only a piece of where he's moving. Maybe you'll see glimpses of his glory and his justice, but I lean on his word here. God sees. God's at work. God's judgment on sin, in fact, is already at work. Romans chapter 6 says, For the wages of sin is death. Now that's the bad news. The good news is Christ. The gospel shows us that though humanity is already condemned, and this is God's justice at play. I know that might, for some of you, you might think, man, that's really, that's harsh. But that's God's justice at work that we have, we are already judged, but the gospel reverses it. This is a famous passage, but John 3, 16, I'll read it all the way to 18. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. Why? Because the world was already condemned. No, he didn't do that. The world, but to the world that through him they might be saved. Verse 18, He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is what God is already at work. Justice is already in motion. Now, this is on the the global reality of humanity, right? But even in these particular things in your life, God's justice is in motion. It was in motion as he's speaking to Habakkuk. I mentioned this before, but in 539 B.C., just... 70 years after the people are exiled, the Judeans are exiled, the Persian king Cyrus the Great conquered Babylon, came underneath those walls and took the city. He did this while King Belshazzar was drunk, which is fascinating when you're reading this text and you find out God says, hey, you will drink yourself. I'll put you to shame. It's exactly what happens some 70 years later. While King Belshazzar is there drinking, not, not from any cup, not getting drunk from any goblet. No, he said, hey, let's go, let's go down there and check out those, those, uh, those golden goblets that used to be in that temple there in Judah. Let's go grab those and have a big old party. God's a little offended by that, but that's just part of his plan. Here, there, that's in Daniel chapter 5, verse 4. He's, it's said of Belshazzar the king that he was praising the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And God showed up, the real God. Habakkuk probably didn't get to see that day, but those who read the prophecy did. And that might be some of our tales. We may not get to see that day, whatever that day is. But what will be the legacy you've left? What will people remember? Oh, he was faithful in what he could see. He was faithful in his, in his watch post where God had called him. This, this is the storyline of the Bible, if you will. You can pop this image up. This is this, is this if you will, meta-narrative of history that can be understood in just four words. They're a little small, but it's creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. This is what God is doing. This is what the Bible truly is. It's the story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. It's really the cyclic story of the book of Judges. It's the cyclic story of the nation of Israel. And now it's the story of his church that was created by the the resurrection of, of our Savior and Lord and now is being restored and redeemed. And this takes time. God is showing His judgment of sin is already in effect, but his redemption, though it has already come, his restoration will follow. Here's the second way we can be encouraged, knowing this, that understanding that God's redemption is available now. It's available now. Now, if we look closer at that verse, verse 14 there, which is really kind of the heart of this little piece. It's the, it's the takeaway, if you will, not only for the nation of Judah, but also for us. God says, in spite of everything that Babylon's doing, and they're just one nation in a long line of terrible nations. One nation in a long line of people who are brutal. He says, verse 14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God's glory was magnified here in the fulfillment of his word. Let's look at Isaiah 2 where we see really what seems to be almost a direct quotation here. That God said this first to Isaiah and now is saying almost the same thing to Habakkuk. Isaiah 11.9 says, For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now I'm starting to think when God repeats himself... That's something to take note of. 
And when he's, taking, when he's repeating himself throughout several centuries to one prophet and then the next one years and years, decades later, and then again, and this seems to be the through line. And God is saying something more to Habakkuk here and something more to us. I hope you can hear this today, church. I hope you can really hear this in spite of whatever good, bad, whatever chaos is in your life, whatever state of mind you're in. Maybe you're in a state of depression or maybe you're in joy. I don't know. Maybe your peace is gone or you're feeling peaceful. No matter how you've come today, I hope you can hear that the through line, both in Isaiah and Habakkuk and then all the way into the Savior Jesus, is that a time is coming when the whole earth will not. That he's not leaving us in this state. And he's already begun this process. And the redemption, the redemptive story is available. It's not foreign. It's not something we can't attain, but by faith we can. In fact, this is where Isaiah goes just a little before that text. In Isaiah 11, it says, Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. He will delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by appearance nor make a decision based on hearsay. In that day, the heir to David's throne will be a banner of salvation to all the world. The nations will rally to him. And the land where he lives will be a glorious place. Habakkuk is speaking to this ultimate reality of not just that God will deal with this one particular nation but that God is dealing with all peoples by his son. That a time is coming when the nations will rally to him. In fact, Revelation says every knee will bow, every tongue confess that time is coming and that redemption is available now. So I wonder something as, I, as I'm studying this, like what, what are we waiting on? Like we're some Christians in the room. We can be some incredibly patient Christians, maybe patient in a bad sense, that we sit back and go, why aren't we rallying to him? Why aren't we being a part of the knowledge of the glory of God filling the earth? Because redemption and salvation, this stuff is available to people right now. 2 Corinthians 6 says, For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Today. There's no like glorious moment coming later. He's giving you a shout out right now. This is an amazing, amazing thing that God's people are at work and that God is at work in us to this day. Now, when God's people finally returned to Jerusalem, I'm going a little ahead and some of you were with us several years ago. We went through the book of Daniel and we got to see this whole thing map its way out. But he's already telling the people of Israel this is going to be a short and swift uh, judgment on the Babylonian people. But something bigger is going on here. And I, I hope this is encouraging to you. This is one of those encouragements that is hard to receive, though. I'll just go ahead and say that. Because some people will say this to you in a very weird way. You ever had something terrible happen to you? And then a, you know, a faithful believer will come up and say something that's not super helpful, like, well, you know, God's in charge. You know, His will be done. I'm sure he's doing something good in this. And that doesn't feel great. At the time. Maybe it takes you a while before that ever makes any sense or feels great in any way. And maybe, maybe I should challenge us as, as Christians to say, I wonder if there's a way to say this in a way that is both faithful and trusting, but also shows compassion. That's what, that's what we're not always so very good at. I understand your plight. I can't imagine what you're going through. But you know, even in that, all I can do is trust God. All I can do is, what, what about that statement? I can't, I, can't, I can't imagine losing a loved one. I can't imagine seeing my kids do that. I can't. Or maybe for some of you, you've been there. Like, I felt some of that pain, and it's, it's discouraging. It's tough. But all I've, found, all I've found, my friend, all I've found to do is just lean on the Lord and trust Him. And I don't, I don't understand everything He's doing. Because that response is truthful. I think it's the right Christian response to say, this is a terrible thing, but I'm trusting that God's at work. And this is what he's encouraging his people with. This is why God would say what he's saying here. Why else would God say to Habakkuk, hey, 
Babylon's getting what's coming. Does at any point in this letter he tell Habakkuk, hey, you, you might want to go to Babylon and warn them? Never. He sends Jonah on such a mission. Jonah says, absolutely not. I'm not going to do it. I can't stand the Assyrians. He hated the people of Nineveh. It's like, I'm not going there. And do you know why he didn't want to go there and shout that message of restoration? Because he knew the people might just believe it. And God would relent and not judge them. And Jonah wanted Assyria to be judged. Who's that? What, what Christian is that for in the room? Oh, I want these people to get what's coming to them. Lord, no, don't you dare restore them. That's, that happens to us all. I really hope these people get your worst kind of justice, God. That's how Jonah felt. And he ran from the Lord. But God doesn't tell Habakkuk that. He's not sending him on a restoration mission to Babylon. So why in the world? He's, we learned last week, he said, I want you to write this down and write it so clear and so plain that my people could see it as they're walking and running by. I want them to be able to take this message and run it around town and everybody would hear it. But at no point did he say, hey, go, go tell this to the Babylonians. No. So why do the people of Israel who are about, the people of Judah who are about to be uh, wiped out, and brought and, and into slavery and exiled into Babylon. Why would he tell them this? Because he wants them to know that although for this season, this, this current generation, there's going to be pain, I've got a plan. Now, here's, boy, here's a challenging word. Here's a challenging word to them, and I think it still remains true today. I don't know that the people of God would have ever returned to him on their own. In fact, I'm fairly confident when I read my Old Testament that they would never have done it. They would have only gotten worse. And so God decided in his, perf in his perfect will and in His great understanding, the only way I'm going to get a people to return to me is I've got to take them through a dark valley. And it may not it may not make sense to you, Habakkuk. It may not make sense that I would use Babylon, who is a terribly wicked nation, to do this. But somebody's got to do it. Babylon just happens to be the right time to exile the people. And guess how the people return? Those of you who studied Daniel with me, years before that we did Nehemiah together. He does something unique here. By bringing his people into this dark valley, guess how they return? They return changed. Changed. Their hearts are different. No longer given over to idolatry. They come home. And this is the, the sad thing that happens in the book of Nehemiah. They discover the word again. It's like they forgot that thing even existed. They brought that thing out and people started wearing sackcloth and ashes and, and tearing their clothes going, What is this word from God? That's how bad things had gotten. They'd forgotten the very words of God to them. This is why he does this. So for that Christian answer to you, it's the Lord's will that this season is happening in your life. And I don't know what he's up to. But he's in charge. And I trust him. And it may take time. He said last week, although it may seem slow, he will not delay I know at least in my own life, I have to go through valleys to learn lessons. Let me ask you this, church. Do you learn a lot on the mountaintop? Do you learn a lot up there? Where, oh, everything's going right. You learn a whole lot up there? I'm, I'm not saying you can't. I'm just saying it doesn't happen well for me. When everything's going perfect, like those amazing days in your life, or you just wake up and it just seems like the birds are chirping on your shoulders. You know those kinds of days? Those aren't the ones where God is just obvious and dear to me. Now, he should be. But it's funny. Those are the kinds of days I have a tendency to forget about him. But those days, those deep, dark days, boy, I'm near to him. And he's near to me. And I'm learning in those times. 
I know that's a difficult word, but I think, in fact, that is exactly what God is doing with his people here. And it might just be what he's doing in your life. That understanding his, his justice, it's in motion, but his redemption is available now. He is near to the brokenhearted. He is dear to those who feel, feel broken and shattered right now. That is where you see God really in a close perspective. And it leads us to this third thing, that understanding that God's restoration is coming soon. Now, I'm going to get real, I'm going to get real end timesy here for just a minute because this is too good, all right? It's too good. I got to go here. I didn't realize until studying the book of Habakkuk how much it's quoted by the New Testament apostles. Paul loves the book of Habakkuk, and the writer of Revelation does, John, as well. And there is a fascinating through line that's happening here. Look at Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3, in fact, tells us that there is a day coming. It says, For still the vision awaits its appointing time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it, for it will surely come. It will not delay. In that moment, that, that it there, I mentioned this last week, that it is in the masculine singular. It literally could be translated, He will come. He will not delay. He will come on time. And the writer of the book of Hebrews saw it exactly that way. He says, there's a time coming where he will come back, and he's not going to delay. There's this through line in the book of Habakkuk that's helping us not only see God is going to restore his people in this time, but he's got a much larger plan that we're a part of. That's, my, that's why we might study a book like Habakkuk. I don't know if you've been asking that question. Why in the world did Jonathan pick Habakkuk? Because God's at work in that book. And he's still using it today. There's this through line. Look at Isaiah chapter 11. I've been reading all around it. He says, He will give justice to the poor, make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his word. One And one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. He will wear righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. In that day, the wolf and the lamb, they will lie down together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion, and a little child will lead them all. The cow will graze near the bear. The cub and the calf will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like a cow. <laughs> the baby will play safely near the hole of a cobra. Yes, a little child will put its hand in a nest of deadly snakes without harm. Nothing will hurt or destroy any. In all my holy mountain, for as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord. That has not happened yet. I don't know if you are aware. Turn on National Geographic, you'll find out it's not happened yet. Revelation 18, in fact, seems to be almost a direct quote from Habakkuk. Let me read that as we come to a close today. Some of you are excited. You're always itching for me to read in Revelation. I know who you are. Revelation chapter 18 says, After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Listen to this, church. Woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour your doom has come. Woe. Woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Woe. Woe to you, great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour, she has been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets, for God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. Now that Babylon, which I believe God is already speaking to in Habakkuk, 
is like the world's government. That apart from Christ, this is what people will be. We happen to be in this nation called America. It's pretty good. I might would even argue it's about as good as a government can be apart from Christ. And, you know, our forefathers, some of the people who created this, some of them were believers. A lot of them were what you would call deists, so they believed in God, but maybe not the Christian God, all of them. But They tried to put in place some things that would protect faith and things like that, but as all systems do, they degrade. That's what we're observing. It's very good to read a section of Scripture like this and realize, you know what? We can rejoice knowing that the great city, the world's governments, they're going to fail. They're not meant to succeed. And it makes me, <laughs> it makes me do something I, I swear I would never do. I used to be really skeptical of these like doomsday preachers. Just picture those in your head for a second, whatever comes to mind. Like I used to look at that and go, come on, man, don't drink the Kool-Aid. You know, that's where we get that very phrase, is these doomsday kind of things. But I can't help but admit that a lot of the features of the apocalypse are already in motion. I think you'd have to be blind to say otherwise. That every nation and tongue will hear. That every nation, every, tri- every tribe will hear. Boy, we're getting close to that. The world has gotten real small. The internet has made us <laughs> to where we can talk to people right now in Thailand we'll never meet. The world has gotten so very small. And all these amazing things. There's this, this big, this Babylon, this great city that will be like the world's government. That there will be one ruler. And we used to think, how in the world is that possible? And yet, even now we're talking about things like this world order. And all of these, all of these organizations that seem to have some charge over the entire world. You go, wait a minute. This is interesting. You can walk away today going, man, that Pastor Jonathan has become one of them doomsday guys. It's okay. I'm not going to go too far with that other than what I've observed. But here's what I know. When you look at those kinds of things, it ought to beg the question, what part am I playing in all the earth being filled with the knowledge of the glory of God? What is my part in that? Do I labor for fire? Is my reality that I would weary like the nations for nothing? Or am I a part of this thing that God is doing? Because the great city, this Babylon, it's failing. It will fail. Is that what my whole agenda is? And for some of you today, I wonder, have you trusted in Jesus? Have you made that decision? Trusted in Christ and said, you know what? I can't go this on my own. He is my Savior. And I wonder what benefit you see in waiting at this point. Habakkuk asked, where are you, Lord? Where are you in all this mess? Well, God for a moment pulls back the veil and says, oh, I'm at work. And in the book of Isaiah and in the book of Revelation, in the, in the apostles, he's pulling back the veil and saying, I'm at work. I've already, I've already allowed redemption in my son Jesus. And I've got an in-state plan. It's all in motion. What will you do with it? Believer, what will you do with it? Let's pray now together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God who does not leave us hanging. You are a God who is not afraid at any, in any way of our questions. Maybe as much as anything as we've studied this text together, I've been encouraged that I can just come to you even when, I am, even when I'm angry with you. Even when I'm in a state of, God, this can't be. This can't, I thought you were just God. This can't be how you're doing this. That you're not offended by that. You're not taking a step back or turning your back on me. You didn't do it with Habakkuk. You didn't do it with the prophets of old. In fact, it seems that you really love these men and women for that. You see that as faith. You, you see that as something admirable in us. That rather than take our complaints and our cries and our, and our questions and our anger and pour that out on other people, And talk about God rather than to God. That instead of doing that, when we lay it at your feet, you actually commend that. I'm thankful that that's who you are to us, Lord. That you not only aren't offended by our questions, but you long for that. You long for us to come honestly and and humbly before you with this, 
the, the, the cries of our heart. You're not at all afraid of them. You want them. You want to hear them. And more than that, God, that, that you are at work and that we can trust you. I, I know at least for me, just, just getting the opportunity to lay this stuff at your feet does give me already the beginning and the sense of peace. That's what lament's all about. That in spite of all odds, we would say, well, I do trust you, God. I do know you're up to something. That, that your justice is swift, it won't delay. and That you're going to do what's best for me even when I, I don't think this is it. But I'm going to lay that at your feet too. God, thank you for who you are to us. I'm prayerful today as I have been in this whole series as I look around the room, Lord, and I, I know these smiling faces and some distraught and sad faces. I know a lot of what they're wrestling with, Lord. I pray, I pray, Lord, that you would reveal yourself in an encouraging way to them. Those people struggling with, with death. Those people struggling with loss. Those people struggling with these really hard questions of why, why did I get sick? Why did this person leave me? Why, why has this happened to my children? Why are you not speaking in my life, God? Where are you in this? Those really hard questions, God, I'll lay them at your feet. Would you speak to your people this week? Would you, would you, would you let your presence be obvious to them? God, I pray, I long for this, that we would get to see some, at least some glimpses of what you're up to even in the midst of like terrible valleys, that we would begin to see, okay, that's what you are doing. That's why I had to go through that. God, would you allow us to peer behind that veil for just a minute like Habakkuk did? And God, I pray for your people that, that we would grow in our ability to trust you, that we would grow in our sense that, God, you are good to us and that you are working out your goodness in us even when we don't always see that, Lord. Would you allow us to grow in this? God, I pray for that person who's come today that has delayed, has put off a decision, has, has decided up until this point to not say yes to this redemption that's available right now. And I don't know what those reasons have been, Lord, but I, I, I pray that today you would be pressing close, pressing in, and they wouldn't run from you any longer. That the glory of the Lord will indeed fill the earth that every tongue will confess, every knee will bow. I believe that's true. And what's really great about all of this is that it's not just that I believe in you so that this, this future reality would be true, but that in these moments right now, your presence is real to me. And you walk me through the good and the bad now. Friend, if that's you today, you've come in this place and for whatever reason delayed this decision, I pray that today you would... Say yes to Christ. God did love the world so much that he offered a sacrifice for you and I. He offered his son Jesus. He was crucified and raised for us so that we could be free from sin, from brokenness, from shame and guilt. That's what he's done. If that's you today, you're ready to say yes, pray simply with me. Romans chapter 10 says, If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead... We will be saved. Pray this prayer of confession with me today. Jesus, I believe you are Lord of my life. What that means to me is you're, you're, you're on the throne. You're in charge. You're the king. And Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for me. I've made a lot of mistakes. I'm a mess. I don't know where I'm supposed to be going. I don't know what's going on in my life. But I'm going to lay it at your feet now. Thank you for your sacrifice for me, Lord, that I can be free. And God, I believe that you raised Jesus from the dead. I believe in both the cross and the resurrection, and that gives me hope. Not only that, and, and confidence that not only you've paid for that sin, but you've also set into, the, into motion a redemption for me, a restoration beyond this life. Dear Lord, now I ask, would you guide my steps? Help me to live for you. Dear friend, if you prayed that prayer, welcome to the family of God. We're praying right along with you. Those, those prayers of God lead us, guide us, 
Help us to not live defeated as Habakkuk might have and the people of Judah might have. No, when they read this word, they should have been encouraged and said, you know what, God's at work and he is with us and he still loves us. And he's got a plan that's bigger than we could see. God, do that in us, your, your church. Help us to live with hope of the glory that's coming. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.